2: You ever a Sepultura fan?
3: Not really, but I um, I spent a lot of time with one of their members, their drummer. This guy's Jean Dolabella. He owned this awesome studio in Sao Paulo called Family Mob.
2: He must have had a lot of floor toms. Did he have a lot of floor toms?
3: He had a lot of nice drums. <laughs> Fucking great guy, great guy. I like uh, I like Brazilians. You do? Yeah, I like Sao Paulo too. Have you been? Yeah, several times.
2: It's like the, you Ooh. know, it's like
3: the old New York. It's like the 70s New York of South America.
2: I got to get there. Ugh. I've always heard so much about Brazil. My my parents both spent 2 years in the 60s uh teaching English in Brazil as part of the Peace Corps. Oh, really? Yeah. So, and my mom, apparently, you know, was very uh skilled with learning languages and apparently by the time she left was just totally fluent in Portuguese and was even offered a a job, like, with the government to do it, um, which she subsequently turned out. I'm not sure why. But when my parents, like, when I was a little kid before my parents split, when they wanted to talk about something that uh, they didn't want us to understand, they would rap in Portuguese. Really? Yeah. And- yeah, it's a tricky <laughs>
3: language. It's not easy. Especially, like, and it's different. South American Portuguese is a little more... Uh, it's not so easy to understand.
2: That's why I'm a born hippie, bro. That's why I'm a born fucking hippie.
3: You're not going to be able to go for a while, man. They're fucked down there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I made a joke to one of my friends who's Brazilian on a group text the other day. He was saying, I have to go to work in the city today. Wish me luck. And I told him, why don't you just lick the subway seat? It's the Bolsonaro (laughs) approach. And uh, he didn't think it was funny. (laughs) He didn't like it. He didn't like it, because uh, that's that guy's whole thing. He's like, I am an athlete. I can't get it. You know, that's like his yeah, his, his bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was funny. You think it's funny too? But you're like an old punk rock guy now. I can't trust your judgment on these things anymore. You can't be my barometer for funny, or else I'm gonna get in there I'm gonna Sorry, get way too much Anything trouble. Funny. <laughs> yeah. So that was. Uh, We had Sean, Sean Bennett on. I really wanted to have Sean because not only is he a super sweet guy, but he has, you know, he's a great artist. I love his music. And I knew he had a history in, you know, social work and homeless advocacy. He's like had his, you know, boots on the ground with some of that stuff, has some strong opinions uh, about everything going on now. So I wanted to get his take you know, precursor warning. I think the first half of this interview is like, not a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's informative, informative. I think we touched on some interesting things, especially with Sean's, um, you know, whole, whole MO really about, about communicating and like engaging rather than, rather than fighting and the things he learned working out like a suicide hotline through most of his teens and stuff, trying to, you know, figure out the tactics to do that. I thought it was really interesting.
3: Yeah, he really put his money where his mouth is, that guy.
2: Yeah, that's right. And honestly, you know, from firsthand experience, he's just a very, like, warm and giving person. I've literally, you know, shown up to his city without even playing there, just being like, hey, you know, can, like, me and six people you've never met in your life just, like, crash all over your house with your pregnant wife in the other room, and you know, so... (laughs) Uh, he, you know, he's forever giving, um, and yeah, I, I love the guy. He's great. It's a long interview. So should we, should we, should we, have a short intro, Brad? Sure. Going track! Hi, I just found out that Brad's having a rough day. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Brad. Yeah. We That's gotta a... help him. What's going on, Brad? I don't know. I had like...
3: I had some weird dreams last night and I don't think I ever got over them.
2: Really? Maybe. Can do you, is it anything you can disclose to us?
3: Uh I I've, I'm I'm losing I'm losing them. I'm losing the actual dreams as we speak. So
2: Wait, what? Are you high? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I've I lose just, dreams all the time when I'm high.
4: I've
3: just lost this oh, session, yeah. too. Where are we?
2: I haven't remembered a dream in of 15 years.
3: <laughs> um, one of them had to do something with Joe Strummer and Ooh. getting murdered. I don't know. It was all just, they were, they were dreams, man. They were weird. and like.
2: Wait, but, did you murder Joe Strummer? No,
3: no. I definitely did oh. not murder, murder Joe okay. Strummer. I would never do that. That's good. Um but, uh, but they, I had, it was like a serial, it was like a bunch of dreams and I would wake up, but each one had like the same vibe when I, when I went back to bed. It was very bizarre. I don't know what the hell I ate.
2: Do you I have some extra, I mean, beyond the obvious, are you carrying any extra anxiety, a little extra weight right now? This Fuck sounds yeah. like pressure, <laughs> pressure, murder kind of dreams. All the know? above. <laughs> Man.
3: Weight, literal weight, as a matter of fact.
2: Sean, how you been sleeping? Uh, I've been sleeping good. I, I go to bed tired. Um, That's good.
4: Yeah, I've uh, um, got a little kid, got yeah. a little little baby uh, crawling around and getting faster every day. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just, I'm worn out. And then then I, I stay, I tend to stay up late too. So I go to yeah, bed around one and I wake up at like seven or eight, um, which is, you know, it's not the, not the worst. Um. But it's nice. I, yeah, I've been I've been resting, resting okay.
2: Yeah, what's uh, what's your routine been like? I mean, you kind of, you know, you were supposed to be hitting the road, and you know, sp- and um, since you wound up in quarantine with a baby, what's what's your day to day like? Like, how how do you man how are you managing your routine?
4: It's uh, it's cool because it's actually like I'm pretty sure the first time I've had like a routine since. High school, <laughs> right, right. Like it's definitely the longest I've been in one place since uh, since before the band started. Is that right? And uh, wow. yeah, yeah. Uh, like over what a hundred days? Definitely over a hundred days. Actually, now that
2: yeah, I'm
4: thinking about like the the last show we played was oh no, that, that was that was before I started keeping track of time. <laughs> right, 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 right. Now, I, now I can keep track of time because I'm in the same place. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah my day to day. So I wake up. Um, I usually take the morning shift with the little one, and then, um, uh, then depending on the depending on the day, um, my wife Tony and I split up like our split up the work week. She's uh, she's studying right now for the um, uh, her licensing exam to be a psychologist in Arizona. Cool. So. Uh, half half the week she does that. And then the other half the week I like just kind of tinker around in, in our guest house, which is now like an office. Right. Um, since we don't have guests, (laughs) (laughs) right, right. right. but in that way, it's been kind of awesome because I I always wanted this to be like a studio office where, where we can get work done. That's like a separate building away from like the, you know, distractions and the child. Sure. Um, and, uh, so in in that way, it's it's this uh, quarantine has actually been pretty cool. Um, you know, it's it's definitely like made me strive to be more creative uh, f- as far as what I do. You know, as a, as a singer songwriter and a performer, I've been I've been doing like these little like live concerts on Instagram, like twenty minute sets
2: every night. Yeah, I saw that the quarantine sessions
4: every night, right? Live from quarantine, baby. Yeah. But yeah, uh, episode one hundred is coming up uh, next Monday. it will wow. be a hundred days in a row.
2: That's some serious dedication, Sean. Oh, That's yeah. good, man. It's pathological. How are you? Like, what, what's? How are you coming up with material every night? Are you are you doing new stuff and covers, and then what else?
4: That's it. New That's stuff it? and covers. Yeah, uh, and and old, and old stuff, of course.
2: Right. Is so how many? Like, how much new stuff do you have right now? Um.
4: Oh, uh, actually, I haven't really been playing, like, when when I say new stuff, I mean, like, new album stuff. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, new songs that I've written since quarantine started, I've probably got, like, uh, one complete, and then probably, like, five or six uh, in various stages of, like, being done. Right, right. Um, either being done, being written, or being recorded, you know?
2: You know, I know, lyrically, like, especially the last record you feed off, you know a lot of political things, contemporary things that are happening. But do you have a hard time writing when you uh, don't have access to the outside world and other people and playing shows? Like, wh- where's where's your actual inspiration to write come from? In that way,
4: I'll uh, I'll borrow a page out of Leonard Cohen's playbook and say that it's a it's mostly a pursuit for self respect. <laughs> Just like the. That. Getting off on that that feeling of accomplishment of like oh yeah I wrote a song today or like and right. you know in Leonard Cohen's case is like oh man I wrote a bunch of lines today that I'm not going to use but I got closer to finishing the the masterpiece that I've been working for like a decade on mm-hmm. um yeah so that's with that said it's it's always hard to write songs it's uh you know nothing nothing works every time and uh, and that's something I need to remind myself of. Consistently, um, it, and also like sometimes it just fucking works is the other thing. <laughs> like sometimes a song will just pop right out of you, and you'll be like, "Oh, wait!" And then try to think about like, who am I ripping off? Like that that was too easy. You know the kind of the kind of yesterday syndrome. But um, with this, yeah, the stuff that I've been writing like lately, uh, there's one song that's like incredibly horny. Um.
2: Sean, I was joking that we won't talk about Arby's this time. We uh, should talk about Arby's unless are you, you really want to. Like, do you do you have anything new to add about Arby's and masculinity since the last time we talked for like thirty minutes about it? <laughs> 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 no. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so I still I, really love, I love the music that Farrah sample is incredible.
2: I mean, and it could Farrah Monch be any more relevant than they are right now, you know? Like, <laughs> Wait, what happened to Farrah Monch? It's just like, people should be listening to their records right now. You know, if, if you hadn't heard Farrah Monch, you should probably get into it right now, considering, you know? Yeah, for good sure. Time, good time for no. political hip hop to come <laughs> back, I would say. But, Let's uh, let's I don't know did we did we record anything we just did Brad Yeah we got the first couple minutes All right so we got the quarantine stuff That's fine I was asking <laughs> about your routine with the kid Oh yeah we were right at um You know the it kind of the quarantine really cut right into like your touring right
4: Oh yeah I was uh I, I would have been getting back from uh, the second leg or the the second canceled tour. Um a couple days ago.
2: How did you go about uh you know making the decision to pull the plug and like when did you make that decision?
4: Um uh, we We kind of saw the writing on the wall and realized that the decision would very soon be made for us. So right. I don't know. Me and Ben didn't didn't really try to stress about it too much.
2: Yeah.
4: Um you know, as soon as you know, it would when uh I think it was probably Washington or Portland was the first one to like, to cancel live events. Right. And that's just a domino, you know, and the, the domino falls and knocks the rest of them down. And, and uh, yeah, yeah. I'm
2: What's skeptical. It? Yeah. Yeah. Me too, man. Um, do you, do you have any, any plans whatsoever to try to do it yet? Like, what, what do you need to see personally to, to feel that it's a, it's a good idea to get back out again?
4: Probably a vaccine that everybody has access to. <laughs> okay, like so I don't. Might, I, it it, it just doesn't see make AJJ sense for to. A
2: couple years.
4: <laughs> I don't think there's going to be live music for a couple of years. Yeah, like yeah. really. Like I think uh, right now I'm, I'm in Arizona, which is a big fucking um, big hot spot yeah. Because we opened up too early, and uh, I'm pretty sure Arizona will become the case study in why you don't want to open up early. I can um,
2: see it. Yeah, York, yeah it
4: Florida. About, yeah. About a month ago, restaurants and bars started opening again and people just started spitting in each other's mouths at these bars. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, as of a couple days ago, we're starting to see like a huge huge overload on our our hospital population. Right. Um and I think that should hopefully be a warning sign for the rest of the world. Um I mean, then again, what, yeah, I'm skeptical. Yeah,
2: yeah.
4: <laughs> I, I mean, think it, uh, a lot of these greedy poison shitting fucks like see see a worthy blood sacrifice as long as uh as long as nail salons get to get to stay open. But,
2: yeah, yeah. And it, it's wild how it's um it's been politicized too. You know, there's people who are literally being like mass shamed like you're a cuck for wearing one or it's like you're a a um you know, not an advocate for freedom if you put a mask on and try to help other people. It's really wild how this has become a uh, somehow a political topic over just a simple scientific and medical one.
4: Yeah, it's 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 very American.
2: <laughs> it is super American. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the point I've been making every once in a while. It's like one of the first times in history where you know that American exceptionalism is really biting us in the ass, full on. I mean, I think it has. In a lot of cases, but we're usually hurting other people with it and not ourselves. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, this may be the first time uh, in a you know a long time that you're actually um, in a worse position for not having a supreme leader that you're accustomed to taking you know nationwide orders from, and if you don't follow them, there's very real repercussions that actually set some countries up perhaps better to to deal with something like this and you know in the States if three people say one thing one person has to say another it's just our style. hmm um, That's
4: true. Oh. We're we're not a collectivist society, that's for sure. We do have we do have a supreme leader. It's <laughs> <laughs> like most of the country doesn't listen to them and then the the you know the percentage that do are definitely the ones that are that think the rules don't apply to them and yes. are Killing their neighbors.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Arizona, as you said, is it's an interesting place, you know, um, politically, where, you know, like, just for example, didn't recognize, you know, MLK Day until 1992, and then kind of only did it when the NFL decided to boycott the state. Um, you know, it has that strange blend of, you know, like, ultra-white orthodoxy and immigrant culture, you know... What in that balance, like growing up there, do you think had a role in just like shaping your politics?
4: I actually didn't grow up, uh, the, I would have gone to, um, well, so from the, from age six to age 13, I didn't live in Arizona. I lived in okay. a couple places in California, Connecticut, Minnesota, and then I moved back when I was 13. So just Disclaimer: There, I didn't like fully grow up in Arizona. Okay, and I feel like those formative years, like I, I have large, large blind spots when it comes to the Arizona history that you would learn in social studies, right? Okay, um, which is fine because I think that probably all would have been bullshit anyway.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 sure.
4: Um, but uh, how do I think it
2: influenced? How do I think it influenced what exactly? I mean really just the way you you see the world and politics like like being so involved in a you know in a state that has you know an interesting history on both sides like mm. I feel like you um someone who's from there who decides to become politically aware kind of has a petri dish to pull from that a lot of different places don't and I was wondering if that For sure. just being from Arizona in general uh how, how it just shaped you know, how you see the world and you see politics.
4: One thing that I, that I like about being politically active in Arizona is that here there is like, there is truly something to fight against. And, uh, you know, it, Arizona was, and, you know, is still Mexico. Um, right. You know, it's, it's Mexico, but it's also been filled by these, uh, these very unique kinds of Republicans. Um, I, I think Arizona Republicans are are unique in that they are, uh, they're not like backwoods. They're like wealthy elites, right?
2: right, right they're yeah. those
4: kind. They're very rich. They're very evil. Um, and uh, so they're they're a great bad guy to go against. I remember <laughs> right. when 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 SB ten seventy dropped when Jan Brewer was going to sign Senate Bill ten seventy into law. That's right.
2: Yeah.
4: Um. Which would have given police officers the right to uh, to ask about immigration status in anyone they pulled over, right? Um, I remember when the I remember there was a there was a large boycott of mostly like indie and punk rock bands, and I thought that was uh, at the time I saw it as an empty gesture because I, I feel like they wouldn't. I feel like they would have been better off coming to Arizona to perform and to spread their message that way, rather than be like, "We're never playing Arizona again." Right. And it's like, uh, okay, stars, sure, whatever.
2: Yeah, right, 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 like, yeah. Um, I remember like, when that happened, feeling the same sentiment. I'm like, I'm like, I know exactly how much you're making, and it's yeah. not worth it not coming. Okay, <laughs> you're not the fucking Foo Fighters, uh, you know where. You know, thousands of people who work concessions and security and parking are losing their jobs for the day, and you're really going to fuck with the local economy. I'm like, you're about to go there and play to 75 people who think the same exact way as you. Yeah, I remember that happening and thinking the same thing.
4: Yeah, like come and play. Invite no more debts to table, and like, yeah, exactly. you know, maybe donate some of your money to to those causes, right? Um, you know, and then yeah if had like kid rock boycotted or something that would have been big business sure <laughs> um but then again now I don't know i think I think a lot has changed since then it's 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 weird that that seems like a more innocent time than what uh than what America and America's most vulnerable are up against now
2: yeah 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 now is there anything in particular with being a a state you know where the you know, the right wing is potentially like so heavily armed and has so much power in a state that's also so connected to immigration and the problems and benefits, you know, for for immigration. Like it really does uh, seem like um a hotbed almost of the two extremes of the situation.
4: Yeah. I mean the right the right is heavily armed everywhere. <laughs> right. Um
2: <laughs> I mean, a little less here, honestly, like it's like the idea of, um, you know, I've been around the country and I've, you know, walked into stores where I see people, you know, armed and open carrying. And for someone from my area, it's still really unnerving, you know, because you walk into a Walmart in the middle of New York City, you know, with an armed gun on your belt, like that's that's clearly a provocation and something fucked up is happening, you know. Um,
4: I, I, too get unnerved when I see, uh, people walking around with guns. Right. It's, it's not normal to, to me either. Penny. You
2: never, you never got used to it. No, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, it's fucking strange, man. Um, now I, I don't remember exactly, but I remember from when we first met early on that you had been involved in some, some sort of social work or homeless advocacy in Phoenix. Am I remembering that correctly?
4: Oh yeah, I worked. Um, I mean, I've worked for a couple different organizations. Uh, like, I, I worked for a homeless shelter, and then I worked for a drop-in center. And both of those places, I did outreach. Right. Um,
2: yeah. And uh, you know, again, is that one of those things that you think, like, um, if you didn't, if you hadn't had seen that, do you think you'd have like a different perspective? Like, is that something that? kind of led again to your politics? Or were you already pretty set by the time you got into this stuff? I'm kind of just trying to get where like, you know, I, I think you have a very unique voice and have for a long time, you know, with um sort of a really sardonic way to look at the world and politics. And I'm kind of fascinated when when you sort of became like hyper aware of people and the things around you and you know, do do you have like a turning point when that started for you, when you just really started seeing the world in that way? Uh,
4: you know, I don't. I think so, maybe. Um, my uh, I come from a Catholic family, and my grandma was a uh, a volunteer for Saint Vincent de Paul for a long time. Okay. So that like that kind of like service and like and it those attempts at, at compassion of like run pretty deep. Um, just from like a from a family level, okay. Um, and I think like uh, the next thing that kind of pointed me towards like those towards the helping industry, uh, the helping profession was uh, volunteering at a, at a suicide and crisis hotline from when I was fifteen. Um, to eventually working there after I got my degree in social work. Oh wow! What does a fifteen-year-old
3: do at a suicide hotline? answer phones really? <laughs> yeah
4: wow it's a uh, right. you uh so you you answer the phones as a as a you know as a kid it's peer-based so okay. teens talk to teens i got right, you, right, right. the idea um and uh you know you're definitely supervised by a master's level clinician and you undergo like more training than a police officer needs to yeah. do their fucking job
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah
4: um you know, getting trained on a variety of subject and a completely new way to communicate with people called active listening. Uh, hmm. And, uh, and a, a great like kind of community support because there's other teens there. It's actually where I met my wife, Tony. Oh, wow! Oh, wow. We, were both, we were both volunteers there. That's awesome. Yeah. We've been, we've known each other since we were 15.
2: So, so what, what is active listening? Like what's, what's that process?
4: Uh, well, active listening is uh, it's just a way to talk to someone. Uh, let me think about the best way. It's a way to, to speak with someone where they know that you're listening, and you're like kind of just uh, reflecting back to them how they are feeling, and like yeah. trying to trying to help the person you're talking to become more mindful of what they're what they are experiencing. It's okay. uh, you don't give advice, you don't you know tell them what you think they should do. You just kind of are there for them, you know? So, uh, you, you give some minimal encouragers like, "Uh uh-huh. Oh yeah. Okay. Go on. Um, you, uh, paraphrase what they just told you so that they know you're listening and so that they can hear back what, uh, what is, you know, what they are saying. Sure. And then you can also reflect their feelings. Like, so your boyfriend cheated on you. You feel sad. Right. Um, just stuff like that. It's a, it's uh pretty helpful honestly <laughs> like to, to talk to to talk to a person and actually hear what they're saying I'm I'm quite out of practice uh, being that like you know I'm in my mid-30s now and and don't talk to as many friends on the
2: phone or people right. like at yeah, all yeah sure that just gets harder once you have the kids you have to schedule those things um, yeah. but I you know I had Red, you know, you believe in engagement and communication to try to solve problems, um, especially like when you're finding somebody who's at a political or ethical odds with you that, that, you know, you feel that engagement is the best way. Like using the tools that you got from, you know, the call center and, and your background, what do you think is a good tool to to engage with people who, who are at those... Um, political, or ethical odds with you?
4: Um, you know, pretty much everything I just said, like listen to them right. and try to figure out where they're coming from. And then, uh, you know, hopefully if they feel listened to and respected, then they can, then they can like take a turn at listening to hear what you have to say.
2: Right. So, so what, at what point in that conversation do you start, do you start saying what you feel? And and how 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 do you say it in a way that doesn't project like I'm right and you're wrong?
4: Oh, I mean, in the context of a suicide hotline, you never do that. Yeah, you never. It's a completely do that. one-sided relationship. Right, 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 right. Um, but uh, yeah. As far as like talking to talking to some good old boy that like you're having a spirited debate with, right? Man, I I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you just got to feel it. You just got to know when the time is right to to argue that I haven't, I haven't been in one of these like arguments or discussions in a while because I don't want to talk to some guy that's not going to be wearing a mask. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, and I, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I try to stay out of the habit of arguing with people over the internet because yeah. I, I don't know, there's a good chance they're a bot.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's a Sisyphean task. That's definitely not, <laughs> not something you want to start jumping down for sure. Yeah I, that's that's one of the things that scares me about this whole thing is the the absolute lack of engagement you know between the two sides at this point and you know everybody's use of you know essentially their own news sources and confirmation biases to just stay where they're at and only talk to the people that make them feel comfortable and i feel like people are getting progressively worse and worse at what you're talking about You know, um, I find like younger people seem to not only be afraid of sort of just a serious face-to-face conversation, but they really have a hard time, it seems, hearing something in opposition and not going to a place of like, just absolute fuck you, you're on the other side. Um, do you feel the same way? And, And do you think, um... What do you think like social media's role had to play in all that?
4: I do feel like we're we're all more isolated than we've ever been despite the fact that we are more connected than we've ever been. Yeah. That's something that's a that's a great shame and it's been weaponized um truth decay
2: fully. What, what do you mean by that? What what's truth decay?
4: Oh, the fact that we all have our own news source and our, our confirmation biases are confirmed and
2: Oh okay, I see.
4: Yeah, I, I uh I don't know. I think uh I think a lot of that is motivated by greed. And I think our uh I think our, our gullibility as a as people have has been weaponized.
2: Yeah, right. How do you see it happening to, because I know, you know, I, I, suffer from the same thing, you know, I like blocked everybody that is just like saying awful things on Twitter. Um, like, how do you think people, you know, and I'll just contextualize it on our side are doing that to themselves and, and maybe what do you think is a good way to get people to open up and try to actually like connect with the other side?
4: Man, I have no idea. Yeah, I really don't because I, I I feel like if you when you do encourage that, I feel like someone's gonna just come. Some hater is just gonna come up and be like, "You're trying to like collaborate with the other side. What are you a cop or something?" <laughs> like it's yeah, yeah. I don't know. When when uh, sometimes I do. I do end up like doing a little bit of like uh, what's that called? I engage with like some some Twitter chads. Like I've been posting like defund the police and black lives yes. matter stuff. Yeah. And, uh, like I, I will oftentimes just counter with a question. Mm-hmm. Um, someone, someone said that I'm like, they made some kind of weird Reddit reference and said that I, uh, that I think you should kill people you don't disagree with or whatever. And, and what a waste of talent. And I just asked that person like what they use their talent for. <laughs> okay. You know, what, what kind of world they would like to live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those those kinds of questions, like questions that are that are nice, that try to make people think. I feel like that can't hurt, but I don't know. I certainly don't know how much it helps when you're talking to, you know, on Twitter. Twenty percent of the people, twenty percent of the users, are responsible for like eighty percent of the posts. And (laughs) okay, like I I heard that figure recently, and was like, oh shit, this is worth. This is like
2: fully useless. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, what's the, you know, yeah I don't know the, if it, what's the what Yeah what's the percentage of those that are actually like real people of age, um, you know, actually like you know, legitimate people and not trolls or bots or those things too, you know? I think the percentage would probably even go down.
4: Oh, for sure. Yeah, uh, there's so there are so many bots. Um it's social media is is an effective weapon, you know, it's it's propaganda and it's uh, it's it's a way to try to sway public opinion. And we're all using it for that. Yeah. But Russia is too. Right.
2: I mean, that's the sad thing about it is is Twitter has has me personally by like the short and curlies cuz I'm like I don't know how to promote anything I do anymore. I know Twitter's a bad place for me. You know, I know it as a fact, like 50 percent of the time when I walk off, I I know as a fact I'm ill-informed and feeling worse about my day, you know, <laughs> and I know that it would be a good thing for me to take away from my life. But in, in honesty, I'm like afraid because I don't know how to, you know, next band I do, next show I have, next podcast I put out, I don't know how to tell people anymore and I can't help but, you know, when I post something like that to go onto the scroll for a minute. And then I usually walk away just, like I said, feeling pretty terrible. Yeah.
4: Do you remember MySpace, man? That was the best. Oh, those I are loved my space.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what about Friendster? Nope. I had one of those too. But I mean, speaking of which, I, yeah, like you said, yeah, I know you've been pretty outspoken about not only defunding the police, but but abolishing it in your city. I know it needs to work city by city. So, h- how do you see that playing out where you live, and and what are like the exact demands or or things that you would like to see changed?
4: Let me preface this by saying I uh, I'm not I'm not the authority on this. Sure, like um, the the authority on this should be Black Lives Matter, Metro Phoenix. Right, are the ones who, who should should have a say in what what happens. But uh, you know, as someone who has witnessed firsthand the brutality of the Phoenix Police Department, and see, I, I've seen how how overpaid they are to entrap people. Mm-hmm. We definitely don't need them. They're not making anybody safer.
2: Okay. Uh, so,
4: so having so just like gutting that budget, making sure that there are less police officers, like. Walking around trying to entrap people is a great start. Mm-hmm. Um, giving that money instead to try to like feed and house people and provide them with medical care and mental health care would be a great place to start. Yeah, um, you know when you when you call a police officer to to when you call the police on a guy that's like talking to himself. Outside of your business, right? You might be sentencing that man to death. Yeah, when you yeah, could yeah. instead, like, I don't know. And and there there are problems in the mental health and healthcare systems with racism too, for sure. But like, they're not going to come out dead, or at least as dead as as if when you call the police on them. But right. say say there's a guy talking to himself out in front of your business. Uh, you could instead maybe call Taros and see if a de-escalation team unarmed can come and like talk to that guy and try to get them the help he needs. Right. That's, you know, that's, that's an example of what I, what I would like to see happen.
2: What are the things that you've seen firsthand?
4: Uh, well, when I was, uh, when I was working homeless outreach, I used to have to work alongside cops and I was friendly with many of them. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I've seen, uh, I've seen a police officer, approach a man and then very quickly uh, start punching him, like punching him into a chain link fence so that his ha- his head would bounce back and you uh, would just keep punching him, like bounce, punch, bounce, punch, bounce. Jesus. And then I saw his teeth and little pieces of crack like floating down a little rivulet of blood. Sorry to be so graphic. No, no,
2: I, yeah, I asked the question. So I mean... So in, in that case of what you saw, like, if there were just two people like you who were, you know, had a background in, you know, uh, social advocacy and, and homelessness. Um, well, not yourself, but, you know, the background in which you worked in. But uh, yeah, I definitely like, wouldn't have punched that guy. Yeah. Like, do you think that's a situation that that could have been handled without violence or arrest and, and could have been, um, could have been, you know, came to a better head if it was dealt with differently. Absolutely. Yeah.
4: Oh yeah. That it, violence never should have happened in that situation. But because in my job, I was forced to, to work with police officers and, and I was essentially bringing people in harm's way. Mm. You know, that's, that's how I look at it. And I feel really bad about that. It sucks. I got another one for you. One of, uh, one of the funniest guys that I worked with, one of the funniest police officers who, uh, you know, interpersonally got along with him just fine, but as a person wearing the badge, um, after, you know, having woken up from this, this dream, uh, this guy told me a story about, he beat up a deaf locksmith got a call there's a guy working on a there's a guy like trying to open a door um and some nosy neighbor called the police on this on this dude and so the officer uh comes over shouts at this guy to like put his hands up the guy is deaf uh he doesn't and this officer ends up breaking his hand beating up this dude and he got paid leave um a sweet Vicodin prescription and the locksmith ended up getting a bunch of taxpayer money out of a settlement. Right. When officer, officer a, uh, officer Aaron Litz, um, got nothing. Uh, he like, he, he wasn't civilly responsible for any of this. He just got, uh, got paid leave. Right. Then I found out later just Googling this dude that like, he's a bad guy. He, uh, he was involved Accused of a time theft scheme where police were hired to work security at an apartment complex and they never showed up but ended up clocking the hours anyway, Maybe. effectively stealing taxpayer money. Yeah, yeah. Um, the guy also ordered an illegal cavity search on a woman, um, which the city also had to pay for millions of dollars. So, yeah, uh, police, they don't make us safe. They cost a lot of money and they aren't civilly like personally responsible for any of the damage they cause right so why do we need them i don't know what will happen with the with this the void the power void
2: yeah
4: at the same time i don't know if that's a reason enough not to uh not to try to find a better way to have a society that's a great way to start is by like defunding the police because then then it'll be like oh shit well the dominoes will could, could start falling. Like, oh, we need to we need to fix our prison system now. That's not working. Which, mm. I mean, shit. It's all it's all this interconnected web of of greed. Yes, and uh, and you know the prison system is definitely via the Thirteenth Amendment a way to to continue to enslave people. Mm-hmm. But.
2: Well, this is this has been fun, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) So let's 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 take a turn because I'm bummed out now. Um,
4: Sure, there's there's lots of good news though. No, there's
2: there's, yeah, yeah. There's so much stuff. Uh, You know, like this is just one of those things that is uh, is like constantly nagging on my head. And part of it is the (laughs) the same thing for you, which is like I grew up like with proper, just like working class, racist white people. You know, and when Trump got elected, I wasn't that surprised when I saw this like rise of them being uh, empowered again and being vocal again. I wasn't that surprised. And I just, you know, as much as I'd like to communicate and engage and find common ground, and I know that's part of democracy, I, um, I think we're, we're talking to a group of people who aren't willing to listen Uh, and, and that's where I just like, I see these kind of stalemate, um, uh, tendencies going on. But as, uh, we addressed in our last interview, we interviewed a guy named Spencer Ackerman, who's a great journalist. And he said a quote that's really stuck with me, which is, you know, the power of the people when marshaled is unstoppable. And it is true. Like, I mean, if there are still thousands and millions of people, hit in the streets demanding certain things with regularity, things do have to change. like there's no choice but that they have to change. So if we're gonna take a positive away from this, I mean there already has been a lot of change and a lot of awareness and a lot of things turning the gears in the last in the last month or two um, that seem positive, right? Have you seen any things that's giving you hope about what's happening? Yeah, for sure. So um, what are the things that are making you hopeful?
4: Minneapolis uh, uh, voted to disband their police department, and it was veto-proof. Right, and uh, that's a huge thing. Um, people are now saying "Black Lives Matter" right. without blinking. Yes. Sure. When it, when when previously that was such a radical statement. Yes, that's true. Uh, and. Uh, like looking at the, looking at the stats about people's opinions of, uh, police and black person relations, the, the window has like fully shifted over the mm-hmm. past couple of years, over the past couple of months. Like it's, it's a new place. Yeah. Man.
2: Um, so that, that gives me hope. It does seem like young people really got it together, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Young people are kicking ass right now. Yeah.
2: That. It, yeah.
4: Like it's the fact that the fact that it all seems bad right now should give you, I don't know, it should give us hope because it's always been bad, but now people, people seemingly have the empathy and the ability to, to reckon with that. It's like we all woke up from a collective dream. Right. Right. And so that, that I like that. I think it's cool. I think our society is becoming more compassionate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the same time there is like, there are antibodies to that compassion. (laughs) What do you mean? Um, MAGA rallies, you know, those people, those people are fighting against this progress that are, that we are making as a, as a people. And uh, you know, it's it's the last dying breath of like of an enemy.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. to use it
4: it's a war term, but no. yeah, I, I mean, kind of yeah. And, and also, I don't know in my own in my own life, I am people are much worse off. I am hopeful because I I am lucky. I've got I've got a little kid keeping me present every day. Yeah, I get to play music every day still. So I am I am hopeful on a personal level just because my life
2: is still not too bad. That's awesome. I yeah. had read, I had read some great advice that Ben's cousin, the nun offered you guys. Can you, can you share that, that sage wisdom that she gave you? Oh yes.
4: Uh, well, I mean, nowadays I guess in social distancing, some of her, uh, her advice is out of, out of date. She recommended dancing, <laughs> <laughs> going out dancing with people. <laughs> okay. But, uh, uh, just to celebrate, to celebrate and to, to experience joy as an actor of rebellion is what, uh, what sister Macrina was telling us. Ben's That's because, yeah, I love that. just, just, uh, yeah, it's spite deer. Deerhoof says it really well. Spite survive.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Like, fuck you. I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to enjoy yeah, my sure. life. I'm going to fight. Public enemy says it too. party for your right to fight.
2: <laughs> Even I'll go. I'll go. Two thousands pop punk on us. Midtown's living well is the best revenge. Ooh. <laughs> Which you know what is funny? There's a guy I went to high school with who said the band stole that from him. His name was Jack Bartolucci. I'll always remember that name. See, those are the names we have in New Jersey. Sean Bartolucci. <laughs> I love it. So, are you familiar with Mystery Friend? <laughs> No, it's mystery, friend. It's a segment on the show where I'm going to tell you a story that happened to you. And I would like you to tell me if the story is true, elaborate on the story, and then tell me which mystery friend gave it to me. (laughs) Oh, God. This is going to be awesome. Okay, cool. So, (laughs) apparently, you and said friend were walking in Reno, Nevada. You were tripping on mushrooms. And you were having a seemingly good walk when somewhere someone said, Sean, really loudly. This person saw something in your face turn where you could have went the wrong way. And they knew they had to tell you that they heard it, too, and everything was going to be fine. And then the trip and the walk remained peaceful. Do you remember this time in Reno, Nevada? And do you remember the mystery friend involved?
4: Do I get to know what year it was? I don't even know what year it was. <laughs> <Damn so no. laughs> I'm trying to think about all the times I've been to Reno.
2: Have you tripped on mushrooms more than once in Reno? <laughs>
3: <laughs> that
4: is the question. I, like The thing is, I, I don't actually recall tripping on mushrooms in Reno at all. Oh. Ah. So my guess is that it was a long time ago. I'm gonna guess this was in 2007 when I okay. stayed with bomb the music industry at Circus Circus. <laughs> was it Jeff
2: Rosenstock? It's close. It's in the same family. Chris Farron. It's, it's Chris Farron.
4: Oh wait, no, that was the last time I went to Reno. <laughs>
2: so, <what happened? laughs> so no, no mushrooms. Was he incorrect about that?
4: No, no, they're definitely mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, okay, shit.
2: <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> God damn it, Chris. <laughs> so do you, do you remember I also, this? I was, was also fun. very drunk. Okay, drunken on mushrooms, good.
4: Drunken on mushrooms is a, a way different thing than than just on mushrooms.
2: That's true. That's I certainly would have
4: remembered uh, the, the weird that weird thing. What is it about um,
2: Reno that brings this out in you, huh?
4: Uh, it's the free drinks that they give you when you go to the nickel slots.
2: Oh. <laughs> that's that's what brings it out of me. <laughs> What's your go-to Bev in that situation? Uh, whiskey ginger. Ooh, nice. That's a good yeah. casino drink. That is a really good casino drink. So we'll give that a little tip, my- tip of the hat to Chris Farron. I love you, Chris. Constant contributor of the show. <laughs> still owes me an entertainment report. I want it done in a Joan Rivers voice. He's been promising it for a while. Now it's on wax that he has to do it. Yeah. Well, that is mystery, friend. <laughs> um, so, Good thank you. So, you still skate almost every day, right? Yep. Avid skateboarder. Uh, what? What are your What are your local spots? What are your some of your favorite spots around the country? And um, I want to know also what, what your current favorite trick in skaters are. All of it. Cool! Oh hell yeah!
4: I love talking about skateboarding. Um, <laughs> so my local spots in Tucson, Arizona, uh, got a lot of ditches. We got the Rosemont Ditch, the nice. Fairview Ditch, uh, the Speedway Ditch. I like the the Safeway ledge. It's this, it's this yellow ledge with angle iron on it that it's just perfect. Nice. Uh, the El Rio Community Center. It's like a kind of three, like a big three stair. Okay. And it's all waxed up. I really like uh, there's this, this Mormon church right by my house that uh, all, also has a waxed up three stair. It's really small The uh, on Sundays and nighttime after nine. Skating at night is uh, is nice because it's really hot right now. Right. Um, yeah. So I go to the Wells Fargo parking lot downtown. <laughs> um, it's like a big parking structure and it's lit up. I love and- it.
2: Some things never change with skateboarding, right?
4: Oh hell no! I've spent (laughs) thousands of hours behind grocery stores and in parking garages.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
4: The city hall is getting redone, so they uh, there's this big like multi leveled like public art piece that used to have a bunch of planters on it, and they took those planters off. So now it's like just all rideable surfaces (laughs) and just like a mani pad, like a big multi level manual pad. I love it. Uh, Okay, so
2: favorite spots around the country. Yeah, like what's a can't miss? Like when you're in that city, Brooklyn Banks. Oh yeah, Classic. I love skating the Brooklyn Banks.
4: Although it's a, it's totally a bust, and I think it's in danger right now. It's in peril. Um,
2: yeah, I heard I, that. Yeah, I'd heard that.
4: Yeah, I like I like Brooklyn Banks. I like uh, in New York City. I like I like Blubba the the Black Hubba. Okay, uh, it's right Where's near. That? Uh, it's really close to Brooklyn Banks. It's like oh, across okay. the street. Um, and kind of across the street from that courthouse, drop to okay. that like Tyshawn skates a bunch. Uh, Lower East Side Park is really nice. Let's see, favorite tricks. I'm still getting the hang of three flips. I'm getting better at them. Okay. Those feel good whenever I get to land one. <laughs> um, favorite trick to do of all time is a crooked grind. Nice. I can. It can go for a really long distance with those. Um and I've been doing a lot of like, a lot of kind of like pivot variations on these on these uh, banks at these ditches, nice. and those have been fun. Uh, I actually have a. I'm working on a part. I've got like two and a half minutes of footage that I'm going to drop pretty soon.
2: Oh really? Who are you doing it for? Just myself. Awesome. Just <laughs> Do you have a go to filmer? Who's who's the person who who knows how to grab you? Oh
4: man. uh Cody Bear. Cody Bear's a really good filmer. Tim awesome. Vasquez is a really good filmer. But uh this is, this part is all it's all quarantined, so it's just like tripod tripod setup.
2: Do you find like when you're when you're out in the US and you just grab your board and, and hit some spots, have you you know found cool groups of kids and young skaters in different cities just by getting out there and skating?
4: Yeah, for sure. That's cool. It's uh internationally even. Like, when you go to a spot and, like, you you run into some, like, German skaters or something, you guys, you share
2: a language. Right. Universal connection. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. When did the pants change? Pants are always changing. Because when I skated, I mean, it was as big as it gets, was the thing. And then somewhere along the lines, you know, know, I always check back in. I, I don't skate nearly as much as I used to. I'm actually being forced to get on a board again because my kids are getting interested so that's kind of cool um, yeah. but I want to get one of those like just an old man setup now you know with like a nice wide uh nice wide base big strong trucks big ass wheels like basically no trick skateboard you know just a bombing skateboard yeah um, cruiser yeah I need a cruiser an old man cruiser. <laughs> what uh so what era
4: did you what year did you start skateboarding trying to figure out which which wave of big pants we're talking
2: i started skating in like 92 oh um, the first era of pants yeah yeah and i you know i probably i honestly slowed down when um you know i skated a lot all through you know my early 20s even and then uh, I had a couple of instances. I was never a great skater. In honesty, it was a pretty competitive skate world where I was from. And, like, there was a lot of people calling people posers. And a lot of the places you're talking about, like Brooklyn Banks and Love Park and some of the spots in the metro area when I was a kid. I mean, if you can skate well enough, you, you weren't even, like, allowed on those spots. You know what I mean? Um, and... Luckily for me, all the skaters just liked my band. So, <laughs> so I used to like go out and cruise with all the cool kids and, uh, you know, I was never great, but I, you know, I always did it and was super, super heavy into it because of the the culture all around, you know, it was like basically the first time I just found alternative culture and other alternative kids. And it was my total window into punk rock and hardcore too, um, But then I remember specifically uh, there was a venue in Greenville, South Carolina that a couple of punks ran in like, you know, the mid aughts like and I played there. Yeah. Do you remember that place? It was like bike repair or something, too. Those two guys. Ken. Ken was one of the guys who ran it. Ken Um, Freeman. uh, Yeah, I think so. He had that tattoo on his arm of like how to tie a tie because he never wanted to tie a tie. That guy's one of my best friends. Oh, okay. So you know Ken? So, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I was at I was at that spot that they had, and they you know they just had like a little mini ramp in there, and I hadn't jumped on a board in a minute, and I literally took one pass on the thing and almost cracked my wrist in half before the show. Ooh. And then about six months later, I was at a friend's house, just fucking around on his floor while we were waiting to do something, and did almost the same exact thing. And I was just like, all right, I'm not good enough to to get seriously injured skateboarding right now, and then I stopped kind of really trying. But you've been an inspiration to me for another old man like me who just still still is at it. And respect to my boys back here who still skate, little Mike and little Steve, they're all little, I guess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a pretty awesome thing. Um, what is what's folk punk and And are you folk punk?
4: I don't consider my band folk punk.
2: Okay. Definitely.
4: There's definitely punk. There's definitely folk. Um, but I, I don't know. I think of it more as just like bland, bland term, but just singer songwriter music. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't identify as much with like, like a, a global folk punk scene or anything.
2: Okay. Which is what though? Like who, who is considered folk punk? Like what? What are those bands? What is that scene?
4: Uh, like bands cur- right? Like doing it right now?
2: Yeah.
4: Uh, days and days.
2: Okay.
4: Uh, there's someone I hear named, Uh, hear about named Harley Poe. Oh, yeah. Um, Apes of the State. I'm just thinking because, like, I'm friendly with uh with folk punkers now. I'm like not as definitely not like a uh, uh as reactionary against it as I was when like. I was in my, my twenties.
2: <laughs> it was right. like, Oh God, why is everyone think that? Uh? But now is it, is that what it is? is? I mean, is it really like the, the lyrical content? Is it like the use of like acoustics over electric? Like what are like the determining factors to put folk in the title instead of just being punk?
4: I guess so. Yeah. I guess it's uh, I guess it's probably, probably the acoustic instrumentation. Okay. Um, Uh, traditional song structures. Like traditional folk song structures, but with like punk lyrics. Okay. And what is that? Didn't I just tell you
2: about folk punk? What's that? (laughs) Yeah, but you're still my go-to, Sean. (laughs) Listen, if I Google the shit, your name comes up, buddy. I'm sorry. I know. I know someone in your press world started pushing Americana, which is smart. I don't know if you did it or if it just started happening on its own. But Like it or not, man, like, you, you're in that world, you know, if you don't consider it or Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure.
4: No, uh, man, I, I like, I love the violent femmes. I like Billy okay. Bragg. Right, um, okay. I think uh, there is there's definitely a through line from folk punk to anti-folk, mm. which is like, uh, you know, anti-folk, you can definitely, like, pinpoint to New York City in the, like, early 2000s, late 90s with, like, uh, you know, Moldy Peaches, Kimmy Dawson, Jeffrey Lewis, Amala right, Trial, right, right. um, those folks, Regina Spector, even. Sure. Actually, I fuck I fuck with that shit more more than I fuck with folk punk. Okay. But uh, and, and then there's also like the Planet X Records. You know, you can't. they they they'll always be a part of the the folk punk conversation.
2: Right. So it, it's there's I. I like that, that what you were talking about, because there's that like biting lyrical thing that came out at that time. That's always attracted me to, to your music that I always kind of found like, you know, anti-folk in a way. It was like, if, if what I was considering folk from the, you know, the sixties or something, you know, the way you were approaching it kind of came off in a very different way to me, um, but the Google told me otherwise, so you know, and that's my <laughs> overlord. That's who I listen to. Um, Google's right most of the time. Like, uh, so you you self released the last record for the first time in a while, right? Yeah, and uh, you you found that positive. You're 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 fully on board again.
4: Well, our experiment was interrupted by COVID nineteen. Yeah, right. Like we, you know, I, I don't know how. I don't know how our our tour press would have gone on a self released thing because we didn't end up going on tour. Right. But uh, I I will say that we definitely don't owe anybody any money for that record. That's awesome.
0: <laughs>
4: it's and, uh, uh, it's recouped and and we'll just keep. We're just gonna get all the Spotify checks and stuff
2: are are, are ours. And how did you handle uh, things like like uh, press and distribution and stuff like that? Uh, we just hired out.
4: Yeah, we um, we hired Jamie Coletta to do press for the record, and we would worked with her. But, you yeah. know when she did work for Side One Dummy. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, she's the best. And then, uh, oh man, who did we get for distribution? Mike uh, Mike Park hooked us up with uh, with one of his boys. Let's see. Oh, digitally we did. We went with Distro Kid.
2: Okay.
4: Which uh, they've they're. They're pretty great. You can put out like as many releases as you want for an annual fee. Oh wow! Which kicks ass. We hired uh we hired Terrorbird to work radio.
2: They did a really good job. And you fronted all the money, all this money yourselves to do all this.
4: Yeah, we applied for a credit card. Oh wow! That okay. uh, that had a really good cash back bonus.
2: <laughs>
4: nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, Chase Bank Records. It's what we should have named our, our, our label.
2: <laughs> so that's a pretty high risk, high reward scenario. Like, um, you know, did you have the full on confidence the whole time it was going to work and not kill you, or did you have some 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 dark moments worrying?
4: Uh, we always have dark moments of worrying. <laughs> sure, that that kind of anxiety is a good thing because it keeps you from uh, it keeps you from dying most of the time. <laughs> um, but uh we were we were definitely confident in that we could at least like recoup the record right you know we we, we trust and know our audience well enough that we could have done that we didn't it, so it wasn't like a super big risk for for us to put this record out ourselves
2: and financial I mean is the band split like pretty much 5050 with you and Ben
4: uh, something like that yeah okay for for a lot of stuff it's 50 50. But, uh, yeah.
2: Um, (laughs) I wanted to talk about the Arizona death car that you used to have. Um, Oh
4: yeah. My Saturn
2: SL2. Yeah. So the first time I went and I don't know if it was the first time I met you or not, but it was the first time we hung. And it was like a 110 degree day and you knew somewhere to get like coffee and a vegetarian snack. And I'm like, yeah oh, I took cool. you to my job, yeah, and uh get in the car and you're like, yeah, yeah yeah, no windows, and I think I had to like walk or walk out of another side, no AC, and I remember being like maybe the hottest I've ever been in my life inside of that car. how long did you did you make that last?
4: uh long time <laughs> that was, yeah, I had that car for fucking years. When did I move away? I'm trying to think. So I got that car in 2004, and then I think I left that car in Arizona when I moved in 2011. Okay. So seven years.
3: Wait, are you saying the windows didn't roll down?
4: The windows were broken, yeah. They were automatic windows, and they stopped working. And And there was no AC. Yeah, the AC was also busted. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're <laughs> gonna die, dude. Benny, do you remember? Do you remember how you felt exiting the car after driving from Tempe to downtown Phoenix? Moist. I think. I think <laughs> like when you when you when you got out of the car, that first when that first breeze
2: hit you, uh, what did you feel? I felt. I mean, that's absolute pleasure. So oh, yeah. What was so was that car just an exercise in like delayed gratification, essentially?
4: Yeah, sometimes I would put the heat on <laughs> And uh, then when I when I get to my destination Get out and it just feels like you're in Flagstaff Just like, oh, the best best feeling
3: So it's like hitting yourself on the head with a hammer Because it feels so good when you stop
4: Yeah, kind of <laughs> And by kind of, like, exactly
2: yeah, yeah, that's so funny, man
4: yeah, um, sorry about that, Benny. That that, that no, car was, no,
2: <laughs> the car it was, was Part, of the, part <laughs> of the wonderful. Listen, anytime I came to Phoenix, I knew I had a ride, albeit hot. You know, I could, I could <laughs> you know find some smoke and some good food and have a nice place to stay. You've always been a a fine host. Anytime I needed, even uh-huh. even last summer, you even take in my other bands. You know, you're it's wonderful, Sean. It was great hanging with you guys. It was. It was a pleasure. Little, those when uh, our bass player Nick was still going through like a week of a panic attack. So I think what you're using as a studio now was his like wellness center for like 36 hours (laughs) and just sat in there. (laughs) Yeah. How's he doing? Is he all right? He's great. He pulled it off, man. He had the classic. This is my first time on tour and I didn't balance the first two weeks correctly. Um, essentially, you know, Jared and Rocky, you know, they're, they're pretty, um, you know, they're touring guys. Like they know, they know how to do it. They know their systems and you know how it is. Like you have to come up with like very real, you know, means and measures to take care of yourself out there. It takes like a while to figure out exactly what you need. Um, and the tour started in Houston and, you know, those guys were like, yeah, let's just leave like, you know, like two days before we got to get there. So basically they take the kid, you know, on a, a straight trip to Houston to start. It was like six straight shows going through the Southwest starting. And then we wound up staying on a day off and a show in Santa Fe. Um, and I think it was a mixture of the exhaustion and a little you know just anxiety about what we were doing and then all of a sudden 7,000 feet elevation and you know strange things like that coming into the mix and it all just came to a head at that supermarket he dropped a bottle of wine and sat down and kind of sat down for about a week um, damn yeah yeah it was I, I, I fell for him man, and you know it was one of those situations like you know me and Jared are talking. We're like, I don't know. Maybe he's just one of those people, like who, who can't do this. Which you know, there's a lot of people like that who, you know, start touring, get a couple tours in. They're like, Nah, fuck that. Like, I can't do that anymore. Um, so that's always that a
4: tough case. one to see.
2: Yeah, it's sad, but it's totally understandable too. You know, like you have to have a certain type of disposition and personality to even like make it for an extended period of time, especially with, you know, van touring and stuff like that. Um, and luckily man, he, you know, somewhere in California, maybe, you know, getting out like into the Northwest just kind of snapped out of it and, you know, found his rhythm and, and honestly like ended up really enjoying the rest of the tour and really wanting to continue to tour. So I give it to him. He. uh he showed great fortitude in that week he didn't give up didn't cancel any shows you know got himself got himself ready and then and then we created another lifer i think so hell yeah yeah It panned out fine your your respite was a big part of it that helped
4: Aw. fuck yeah should, glad to help you glad to help help birth a lifer
2: that sounds like a strange phrase um i was just watching the mega guillotine video before which i love oh thanks Were were you nervous putting that video out like did you think that something strange might happen just because of essentially you know like beheading uh like a number of politicians and stuff
4: you know i was a little nervous about that yeah but then I was then I was quickly disappointed because the the nature of discourse in this country has has gone so low that that was barely a blip on anyone's radar right. that would have been would have been weird about that previously.
2: Were you kind of almost hoping that it was going to create a bit of a fuss? Fuck yeah, dude! Yeah, <laughs> like,
4: <laughs> we're gonna get on Fox News. We're gonna be the new ISIS. Like, come on! That would have been. We would have sold so many records. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Ugh that controversy it did not work no, yeah. one, ca- no one cares anymore because everyone's screaming as loud as they can yeah always. you
2: needed to do it in like a 15 second clip and <laughs> just didn't get enough love
4: oh yeah the, the minute and 10 <laughs> the minute and yeah. 10 second long song was too long yeah you lost people you lost
2: people at about 22 seconds man
0: I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> just the way it is now <laughs> I was like, I, I remember watching it early on and I was, I was concerned for you guys. I was like, Oh wow. I'm like John's really going for it, man. <laughs> like he's doubling down. <laughs>
4: um, it wasn't enough.
2: Yeah. So I've been, I've been trying to get to know my, my wife told me one of the more interesting things about interviewing is finding out people's, uh, rituals and. You know, I had a very specific ritual to play live because it's like my sort of way of quelling my own anxiety. You know, Um, Mm. do you have any like fun, interesting setups before a show? Anything you like do or don't have to do? Uh, What's your routine getting ready to play?
4: It's uh, it's pretty boring. It's just uh, vocal warm ups. Okay, I do the same. I do the same vocal warm up app that uh that Jeff and Chris do and most of the other punk rock lead vocalists I know right. it's called vocal ease and that usually takes about twenty minutes and I'll do that like I'll either go for a walk around the venue or uh, if the green room is quiet I'll just do it in there yeah and like you know restring my guitar or tune up uh for a while i I had a bunch of uh these trump stickers I made uh-huh with uh, it's a a cartoon of Trump that I drew with, uh, fancy snakes coming out of his eyes. It's, uh, snakes wearing top hats. <laughs> and uh, so for one tour, for our tour with uh, with Joyce Manor and Mannequin Pussy, I would just put a stack of those in my pocket when I went out for my warm up walk. Nice. And no one would fuck with me as I was just slapping those up because it would be like, I'd have my phone <laughs> on my ear and go slap slap and no one wants to engage with that
2: no no people <laughs> thought you were crazy yeah that's awesome that Jeff is you know when I toured with Antarctica Jeff you know he gives you no warning you could just be sitting like right next to him out of nowhere and it's just like rah, just scream oh he does
4: them really loud too yeah 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 he did, <laughs> I don't think you're he he does- supposed
2: to do them that loud <laughs> But it works for him. Yeah, whatever works, he's doing it. <laughs> well, I hope you can get out there and play some shows again soon. Me too. One of these days. Highly um, doubtful.
4: It just doesn't seem responsible. Like until until yeah. there is a vaccine yeah, that listen, everyone a, can have I, access to.
2: I gauge it a lot. You know, like you know, I'm a big sports fan, as you know, and like um, watching these, you know. Billion dollar leagues with, you know, who individually have like usually billion dollar owners of each team super scrambling to try to find these, you know, uh, situations that might work and these plans that are getting like more and more kind of absurd by the day, the way they're presenting it. And I keep thinking, I'm like, if these people who have such a vested monetary interest in these things happening can't figure it out, uh, it's hard to see uh, people like us figuring it out before that and starting to stuff rooms with people again. I mean, the NBA wants to quarantine everyone in Disney for three months. It's literally the plan right now, you know? It's going to be Mickey Mouse and LeBron James hanging out for three months. You just don't even know what's going on. Um, That's crazy. I know, it's pretty wild. And I almost tweeted today, thanks to Florida for ruining the NBA. But I just didn't didn't want to get into it that deep, you know? What what did Florida do to the NBA? Well, they're just doing the same thing as Arizona, being irresponsible. They're having an extra spike. And since the NBA is trying to... Have their season in Orlando, uh, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's making it a little, little bit of a tougher sell for players to be like, sure, I'll leave my family and just go down there for three months. Um, so, yeah. Uh, wh- who are your favorite bands right now? Who are you listening to or favorite artists, bands? Like, I listen to a lot of old shit. Yeah, what are you, what are you jamming on? Some Three Dog Nights? Oh, I like Three Dog Night. Yeah, me too. Um, I just spun one of those albums actually.
4: <laughs> let me check out ye old Spotify. Here we go.
2: Yeah.
4: Uh, this morning gonna... I was listening to this uh, this English record called um, "Babble" by Kevin Coyne and Dagmar Kraus.
2: Okay, no idea what that's like.
4: Kind of like psychedelic folk. Cool. Um, let's see, let's see, who else I got? What do, What do I got here? I'm bad at talking about the stuff I like.
2: Are you better at talking about, should I ask you about bands you hate? Uh, I'd probably,
4: yeah, I could probably fill more time that way. (laughs) (laughs) Cool Keith. I really like cool Keith. Sure. Um, Blaze Foley, I've been listening to a lot of, he's a country singer from, he died. he, He was a Texan country singer, homies with like Towns Van Zandt. Uh, Willie Nelson covered one of his songs.
2: Cool.
4: I like Willie Nelson a lot. I like Mama Cass Elliot. Uh-huh. Cody Chestnut. I've been listening to the Headphone Masterpiece again. Okay. Uh, let's see. What do I like that's new? I've been listening to a lot of DJ Screw as of late. George Jones. I just discovered the country singer George Jones last year, and uh, he has a very emotive voice.
2: I, I've really been watching touched. some of those Laurel Canyon docs and stuff. It's making me think about you know late '60s, early '70s rock a lot. Who, who's your who's your go-to's from that from that era? I know you're really into that stuff.
4: Neil Young, Neil uh, Young and, and Jackson Brown are my two go-to's from the like kind of the Canyon folk scene, folk rock scene.
2: Right, right. Any Buffalo Springfield? Yeah, Neil was in Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, that's why you are out
4: there too. He wrote Mr. Soul, which might be their best song.
2: And Except for that
4: Vietnam song. Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I forgot that uh that Southern Man was a not not a Neil Young song, but a Crosby Stills Nash and Young song. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. He uh, he mean, put on. Maybe it, on it was Neil his, record. his song that they brought to it, you know. They were like the antithesis of like community-driven bands since they were all Punching each other in the dick to see who got the most writing credits on the record, you know?
4: (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. Like, I mean, I was watching some of those docs and there were two things. I really love that music. I love that scene. I uniquely got to spend like four days in Laurel Canyon once, um, where, you know, I like tried to soak it up and I really, I really, I understood how special what they were dealing with was. But there were two things that stood out to me on the other side, which was A, These guys are fucking egomaniacs, like insane egomaniacs about their own abilities. Um, David Crosby is maybe the only one who kind of owned up to it. And also I'm like thinking about the year and I'm like, oh, this is like 1967. And look at all these like rich white hippies just jamming up in the mountain, not giving a shit about what's going on down in downtown LA and like, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world. It did seem like they had a pretty, uh, a pretty big bubble up at that time until, you know, until Charles Manson came around and stuff. For sure. I I was a little shocked (laughs) by the fact that they basically, you know, based almost everything they have on, on black music, but sort of ignored the experience at the time.
4: Yeah, that's uh, Mark Mathers about from Devo when uh, when Neil wrote Ohio after the Kent State shootings was like, it kind of echoed that same sentiment. Like, you're going to tell me about like about my friends that just got killed. Like, fuck you, you rich hippie. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, some of it seems pretty out of touch, you know, whatever was going on up there. I mean, it's fun, you know, like not to say I wouldn't have taken the job if I got to live in Laurel Canyon and just be high on drugs and write music all day and just wander over to like Frank Zappa's house and shit. Sure. I probably would have signed <laughs> up for it. I don't know. I'm not going to take that. <laughs> take, yeah. Take, <laughs> but anyway, Sean, we've taken a lot of your time already. I think, man, it's been a good hang. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Sean. I'll, I'll talk to you soon, bud. All right. Love you, Benny. Be- all my best to your family as well. Yeah. Same.
3: Bye Brad. Thanks a lot, man.
2: Yeah, Ooh, at least it got more fun you know i'm glad it lightened yeah. up yeah <laughs> classic going off track you know like going off track <laughs> style man that death car Ooh, i am not kidding that thing
3: dude that doesn't sound like that really sound you could literally die like it's like a puppy it was like a
2: big it was like a big and you know man like i'm not i'm not cut out for the desert like i don't go to the desert wearing like little shorts and cutoffs like i'm in I'm in black jeans all the time. I got long hair and a hat, like, all the time, you know? So, yeah, I I definitely played off to Sean like I was in much better shape than I actually was. I was in that car just like... <laughs> <sighs> you must have been soaking dying. wet when you got out It doesn't out of take car. much to get me to sweat. And, fuck, man, I'm probably ruined his upholstery, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it, this shit was funny anyway. It was... <laughs> It a good time. That was actually the same trip. Funny story. And I won a hundred dollars off uh, Alex Levine from Gaslight Anthem. We went to a Diamondbacks game. It happened to be Diamondbacks New York Mets and the Metropolitans are his favorite team, so I knew I could, you know, get a little homerism going on and maybe take his money. So I not only bet; I bet fifty bucks straight up on the game. I'm like Diamondbacks are winning. This is when Gaslight's doing good. You know, I don't care about throwing that around. Right. Uh, <laughs> and 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 then right in the middle of the game, it's one of my best betting impulses I've ever had. There's a guy named Mark Reynolds, who essentially his entire career either struck out or hit a home run. He's just one of those guys, low average hitter, hit a lot of home runs, and the game before. He had been plunked. He got beaned. And I knew it. I saw it on SportsCenter, and it was a little bit of a tussle. And then he had already had two strikeouts in the game. And I called another 50 bucks. I'm like, Mark Reynolds hits a home run this game. Ninth inning. Boom. I'm yelling at the guy. Because there's not a lot of people in the stadium. And the I think it's Chase Field in Phoenix. And they have a TGI Fridays in center field. And I'm yelling. I'm already drunk. I'm like, hit it to Fridays, kid. Hit it to Fridays. And sure enough, last at bat, plunks one, 400 feet to center field. I'm just hanging over Alex. You're that It was fun. That was good. And he's a tough guy to get money from, too. So I really had to be persistent. <laughs> <laughs> good times in Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix is a surprisingly good town. I've had some interesting some interesting scenarios in that town. It's funny, Reno came up in this, too, because I had once uh, smoked an apple bowl with a homeless guy in Reno.
3: Reno, that's a fucking totally weird town.
2: Sure is. doesn't surprise me that Sean has done uh, psychedelic drugs in that town more than once. It's kind of how you get through it.
3: The Atlantic City of the Rockies.
2: <laughs> what a wacky place, man. What is it called? The Little... The little Littlest big city on earth.
3: Is that what it is?
2: Yeah, that's the thing. It
3: makes sense.
2: So, you know, Sean's on social media with the band. It's uh, at capital AJJ, the band on Twitter, lowercase AJJ, the band on Instagram. Their new record's great. It's like, you know, Sean's usually not so upfront about his politics as he is on this record like it's usually a little more nuanced and you know hidden in song and this record it's a lot more upfront but as i said in the interview you know he does it in that really kind of just funny and sardonic way that makes it fun to digest especially for a you know a punk rocker like it's uh it's like the heaviest shit you could talk about but it just in the funnest way you could talk about it Right. And I truly appreciate that vibe. I think it's uh, a testimony to his personality and also writing songs like this since like 2004. You know, he's like really mastered the craft, I would say. Cool, yeah. So check them out. It was awesome that he came. I appreciate him very much. Definitely check out the music. What do we got going on? We got uh, this when we start asking for money?
3: Well, our Patreon account is. (laughs) i know you're just waiting come on it took me so long i gotta hype it
2: brad's wearing sunglasses right now with like little dollar symbols on them (laughs) but they're still plastic because he can't afford the real thing yeah so if you want to buy me some new shades man
3: (laughs) patreon.com slash going off track we got a couple tiers there we've got some bonus content
2: oh and we got a lot for this interview right I, i even forgot to mention that so
3: yeah, so we'd have an entire bonus episode with Yeah, Sean, so when think.
2: I was talking about staying with Sean in Tucson last summer, uh, right before we left, I caught him in his laundry room and got about an hour. But this is when we were pitching the concept of a show where I was going to deal with uh, the Arby's commercials and their connection to masculinity. <laughs> so a good 30 minutes <laughs> is me and Sean covering <laughs> that topic and the fact that Pharaoh Monch... Did the uh, <laughs> is the uh, Arby's song, which I didn't know until Sean told me. I never knew that, dude. I couldn't yeah, believe. Sean through the whole time was going dun 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 dun. He just couldn't get over it. So I think maybe this is the perfect opportunity to release some of that cool extra content to Patreon after this interview for sure.
3: Um, and with Venmo, you know, if you want to give us a tip, which plenty of you are, thank yeah, you so appreciate much. Appreciate it. You can give us any amount at Venmo um at off track and uh yeah a buck five bucks whatever you want man whatever we're yeah. worth to you you know um, awesome yeah really we could we really appreciate all the support we're getting um it's helpful we do have a few you know monthly expenses and and it's encouraging man <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're really bad at this
3: i know but you know yeah. what are you gonna do? <laughs>
2: one by one, Brad, one by one, take <laughs> away at it. This is my, what my career has been the whole way, you know, you just chip away, just chip away,
3: chip away until you're good at it <laughs> or, or until people have accepted you doing it. I know,
2: I know. <laughs> But for real, I do appreciate it. It's like, um, there's a lot of things we can do with that money to make the show better and then just keep it going for longer and longer. So I do very much appreciate. Hope you enjoyed the episode. What's our socials?
3: Going off track, baby.
2: For all of it. Twitter and, yep. And you're so, Twitter and Instagram. So streamlined. Facebook, all of it. All right. Well, let's get out of here. This has been long.
3: See you next week. Bye.